Happy Father's Day, friends. To those of you who are fathers and those of you who have them, that includes all of us. <laughs> I'm going to start the sermon this morning by saying that our callings are costly. Our callings are costly, and they are costly because they are worth something. Our callings are costly, and they are costly because they are worth something. It was precisely in this ongoing process of, of discerning my call that I was uh, whitewater rafting on a river in Tennessee. See, I was a youth leader with, with uh, the church I was volunteering with in Chicago, and, and I got to go to the Chick Conference, which is now called the Unite Conference. It's a conference for for high school students all across our denomination, they all gather in Tennessee for a lot of fun. And, and you too could go early and you could choose and pay to whitewater raft if you wanted to. Maybe you're catching on that I was not super interested uh, in whitewater rafting, but the rest of the team was, and so uh, I was a good sport. You see, they had a, a boat that was specifically for beginners, and I uh, graciously signed up as the adult leader um, to go into that beginner boat with all the other kids who felt that they were beginners as well. I was nervous, let me tell you, because we knew that there were certain classes of rapids and I had never done this before. And I was so terrified of getting thrown from the boat. I knew how to swim. We had all the safety gear, but I did not want to get thrown from the boat. So here we are, this beginner boat. And little did I know that our guide, God bless her, was also a beginner guide. And this was the very first time she had led a group down this river. It was about halfway through when we were trying to dodge a set of rapids that our boat ended up on top of a boulder. And, uh, and we spent a lot of time first just assessing the situation. Our guide spent a lot of time, by the way, we're with high school students on a Christian trip. Our guide spent a lot of time saying impeccable four-letter words, loud and then also under her breath. And I'm like, may the water rush past the ears so they can't hear this. Here we are lodged on top of a boulder. Uh, there's a waterfall that goes down uh, and, then, and then the rapids, okay? Uh, and here I am in this boat with all these beginners, and specifically two young women who were quite, quite small, okay? Uh, and, and I'm getting nervous. So our guide starts saying, like, bounce up and down, because that'll get us off the boulder, and then we'll just cascade through. She had no idea what she was doing. Uh, eventually, our boat started to tip forward. All the other kids dumped out, and uh, she just said, feet first, you know, like, that's supposed to help. Um, they all dumped and they started floating down the river and then other teams of rafts were picking them up, like literally picking them up out of the water. Uh, but she remained in the boat and, uh, and so did I, along with these two young girls, so small. They uh, were holding on to this boat for dear life and the water started rushing over us. We were like literally in the middle of the river. And I, uh, had a, I, I looked at both of them. And I could see in their eyes 
they knew they, they were going in. And they were so small that they would certainly get lost in this river. And so uh, in a moment of panic and fear, I put my um, arm through the top of one of their life jackets and my other arm through the top of the other one. And I said, I will do anything I can to keep you from falling in this water. And I leaned back uh, and the boat leaned forward and I leaned back. And our guide said, hold on, this is gonna get a little tricky as if it wasn't already. Uh, and I, I prayed to, to the dear Lord Jesus, like, can you please just let us make it? She eventually used her oar to like budge us off um, so that we were hanging over even more. And then another team said, we're going to send a boat to Bankia. So they sent a boat to bank us, and we eventually went like this and got back off the boulder and on our way to, in, in the river. We, we eventually got all of our own children uh, back into the boat. And, uh, and, and then all the other pieces, like oars were missing. One kid lost their helmet. Like, you don't want that either. Uh, I have, I've never been so terrified on a, on a youth trip. Uh, and I was pretty satisfied sitting down in the middle of the boat the rest of the time. Uh, and I had some choice words to the guide after we got back. I reflect, reflected on this moment a lot in the years that followed as my call began to grow. And while so much is said about riding the streams or the rivers of life and, and ministry, there is a time, and, and in fact, there are many times where the currents that surround us are not of the Spirit of God. They are actually directly against life itself. I found myself braced in one of those moments, a moment that felt like it was directly against life itself. And I have to tell you, it wasn't holiness or, or a robust theology or a, a savior complex that caused me to brace my legs and, and hold on to these girls by their life jackets and lean back into the current. It was actually uh, that I was just called in that very moment to keep these small, dear ones from being crushed by the current that was almost overwhelming them. I saw the fear in their eyes, and I knew they might not make it. So I did what I could. I could have done more. I knew that after the fact, but in the moment, I didn't know. Our callings are costly, and they're costly because they are worth something. Today in Acts chapter 4, we observe the cost of calling for both Peter and John, who are Choosing to speak the truth to power, religious power, by the way, we'll get to that. They choose to speak the truth to power because what they were called to and who they were called by was worth something. And so I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles. If you can, we have words on the screen. We have Bibles in the pew in front of you. Uh, if you can, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're continuing the story of Acts. We're hanging out here all summer long or winter as weather makes it feel like today. Uh, and we are going to read Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22 this morning. This is how it goes. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because 
the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas and John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do, these, do, did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone that you builders reject, rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind, which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could not, uh, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the from the Sanhedrin, and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed notable, uh, notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. But the man who was miraculously healed uh, was over 40 years old. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may remember, we saw uh, last week in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking along. They see a man who cannot walk. They, they speak to him uh, in the name of Jesus and say, stand up, you're healed. And he is healed. And this creates quite the hullabaloo. You see, in Acts, we see a, a concentrated conflict between the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of religion. This conflict is actually not new. It's just concentrated. Because Jesus certainly had conflicts with religious power. His most harsh words were reserved for the religiously powerful. God's words throughout uh, the Old Testament, through the prophets, were chock full of warnings for those who were caught up 
in religious power, who worshipped other gods or used God's name to perpetuate violence and oppression. God's word, our scripture, is consistently uh, drawing religion into the light. You see, religion is, is the construct, it's the structure that humans use to make sense of the mystery of God. It's the means by which we try and understand the not understandable. And there is a lot of beauty to this. Let me say that and and may you hear that this morning. There is beauty to that. There is gift to that. And, And it is so easy to make religion the God of our lives and not God the God of our lives. We ensure that Uh, We sometimes ensure that the construct and the structure that helps us relate to God stays intact, while at times ignoring the mystery of our maker altogether. We sometimes worship this construct, not the God. The gifts, uh, uh, there are gifts to religion, certainly, and sometimes religion actually serves as a barrier to God. It is all too often that, that the current of religion, that this current we perpetuate, goes against the flow of the Spirit. The temple guards, the Sadducees, the priests, the elders, the rulers, the teachers of the law are those with Jewish religious power. They hold and maintain the institutional power of belief for the Jewish people. That was their job. That was their role. God actually commanded them to do this in the Old Testament. And the Jewish law had been the current of faith, the mainstream for the people of God for so long. And so these leaders, they knew that that current. They knew that flow. And they perpetuated that current. They preserved the current and they rode it like masters of the river. So when an interruption to the flow, something gets lodged there, presents itself in a real way, they perceive both danger and fear. I get it. When Peter and John participate in the healing of the man whose legs did not work, they are acting in the flow of the Spirit of God, but certainly against the flow of religious power. And because of that, they're incarcerated. Calling has cost. Then they are brought before the powers that be, and they are asked, by what power? By what power or what name did you do these things? Uh, these, these leaders are trying to catch them. You can tell. And what does it say in verse 8? They ask that question in, at the end of verse 7. In verse 8, it says, Peter, not had a great answer, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't have grand ideas. He didn't uh, have a planned and written sermon or a missional strategy for what would happen next. No. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, his whole life, every part of his story was leading him to this moment of calling. 
I don't want us to forget in the whole hullabaloo of Acts how some of these people got here. I don't want us to forget Peter's calling. It's a, it's a significant story in this current story. And if you would allow me to play on words also in the current of the mainstream that he finds himself. You see, Jesus calls Peter and it's recorded in, in Luke chapter 5. And you might remember that Luke and Acts were written by the same guy, Luke. Um, and they are kind of two stories that should be connected. But in our Bibles, the way they're organized, John uh, interrupts those two. But I would invite you, if you would, to, to flip with me to Luke chapter 5. I conveniently have a, a blue post-it, but you might not because I didn't prepare you. Uh, but if we can look at, at Luke chapter 5, I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to summarize it for you. Uh, Peter is, is called by Jesus at the water's edge, at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. You see, because Peter was a, a fisherman, he was acquainted with the waves and the currents of the water, and Jesus meets Peter there, not up on a mountain, not in the desert, right by the water. And I want you to watch the progression of this. Okay, you can read it too, but I'll, I'll summarize it. Jesus encounters Peter and Jesus just asks that, that he could use Peter's boat. Can I just, can I just get in the boat? It'll be, it'll be easier for everyone to hear if I'm, if I'm in the boat. Peter's like, well, yeah, sure. And then, once Jesus is in the boat, uh, Jesus asks to be put out into the shallow water. It helps with sound a little bit better. Okay, Peter says, sure, sure. Then Jesus asks to go to the deeper water. Well, I mean, that's, sure, that makes sense. We can go a little deeper. There in the deep water, something happens to Peter and for Peter that he was not expecting. I'd like to call it the overwhelm, okay? The overwhelm. Peter ends up with so many fish that he doesn't know what to do. A fisherman with so many fish, he doesn't know what to do. Uh, this overwhelm. And after this overwhelm, Peter confesses. There's a confession. And only after this series of events does Jesus call Peter into discipleship. You see, I, I see a, a current of calling. A current of calling that is costly. And Jesus doesn't ask for everything right at the beginning. No, no, no. Jesus asks just for one cost at a time. First, just a little space in the boat, then just put out a little bit of water. And then once trust is established, a little deeper into the water and there in the depths, that's an unknown place. Jesus provides for Peter in a very overwhelming way. Whew, too many fish. And then after this overwhelm, Peter makes a confession. I am a sinful man. And then after this confession, Jesus calls him. This is the, the flow of discipleship for Peter. Peter didn't know that that first day on the Sea of Galilee, that, that one day he would stand in front of religious power and tell the truth. Truth that would be very costly to him. But here he is. There I call him a boulder in the current of religious power. And all of this tracks, that's what the young people say nowadays, all of this tracks because you may remember what, what Jesus tells Peter later on in his ministry. It's recorded in Matthew 16, verse 18. You are Peter, and on this rock, boulder, 
On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overwhelm it. Peter is a boulder in the flow of religious power. And Peter has been equipped for this work by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is costly. When Peter was called on the shores of Galilee, he was called to fish for people. That's the phrase that Jesus used. But here in Acts 4, the people that he's fishing for are actually those in religious power, the ones who are perpetuating a current that is no longer in line with the current of the Spirit or the current of life. He's actually called to them. And he preaches the good news to them. I can't move forward through this sermon without acknowledging some things, without telling the truth about some things. I am a person in a position of religious power. It could be very easy for me to perpetuate currents that go against the flow of the Spirit of God. I confess that that in seasons of ministry, I have acted in ways that uphold my own power, religious or otherwise, instead of moving with the current of the Holy Spirit who empowers. As much as I would love to think that Jesus or Peter or anyone else who spoke the truth to power isn't speaking to me, I know that this is not the case. The Acts 4 story, really the the whole book of Acts, would look very differently if those in religious power consistently received the good news of Jesus that set them free from the law, what the religious power was actually built on. But instead, those in religious power, they actually clung to it. They punished those who spoke ill of it. They incarcerated those who threatened their power, and they threatened those who were clearly full of the power of the Holy Spirit. Before I point the finger, my finger at other people, you all and your religious power, I must first consider how I have acted in similar ways. And I'm certain I have. I had an experience of deep conviction in the late spring of 2020. And as I've reflected over that experience over the past two years, I think it was one of of many call-shaping moments in my life and in my ministry. It was a few days after George Floyd had been murdered and something was stirring in me. In my life before those days, I had been, I would say, indistinctly sympathetic. Indistinctly sympathetic to the experiences of people of color in the United States. I believed their stories. I had read books about the disparities and and systemic injustice. I hurt for my friends who managed through the current of racism so deeply embedded in our country. I hurt for them. But I never considered it my responsibility, my call to do something about it. 
even saying those words now feels yucky. And I do confirm that confession sometimes feels yucky. I can remember so much about my moments of conviction and calling. I was driving down Hogue Road, good, good name for, uh, for a conviction and calling road, right? Uh, and this road runs along the Skagit River up in Mount Vernon, interestingly enough. I was uh, uh, jostled by this deep sense within me. I would call it a knowing that, that swelled into my awareness with a lot of clarity. I didn't know, I, I didn't know and I don't know now if I can exactly put words to all that the, the Spirit was revealing. But what I experienced clearly were these words. Britta, this will cost something. In my years of prayer that have followed those words, I can only surmise that these words confirmed a calling in me, a calling to anti-racism as a part of my pastoral calling. Along with this, I must confess a few things. I confess that it took me this long. I confess that while I heard the truth, I did not always believe it. I confess that too many of my neighbors of color have endured my inaction directly or indirectly. I confess that I failed to participate in God's call to a reconciled world by leaving myself and my personal power out of that reconciliation. I confess that I am still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still counting the cost, and I'm still making mistakes along the way. And I confess actually with joy that Jesus has called me to something costly. And even in the short time of living into that call, I've been compelled by something. And that something is freedom. Today we, we honor and we commemorate Juneteenth. And we do so in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters and to remember the truth of our history and the truth of our future, that freedom begets freedom. You see, on June 19th, 1865, the good news of emancipation for the enslaved finally reached Texas, which was the last Confederate state with institutional slavery. And while President Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863, it took over two years for that truth to get to the places that it needed to be proclaimed. Freedom is good news. And it's good news for both the oppressed and the oppressor. Though historically, it certainly takes the oppressor a lot longer to believe it and to be called towards it. As a white woman, I am intentionally choosing to commemorate Juneteenth today because to be truly free, I must work toward the freedom for all. Because I believe that redemption is for all, that reconciliation is for all, and that no one is left out of the good news. And this invites me to look here first, before I look out. This invites me to do the heart-soul work before I ever look at someone else and point a finger 
at someone else. It's kind of tricky to tell the truth to power when the power is here. But it's important. It's worth it. You see, when we speak truth to power, as Peter did with the religiously powerful, it is for the sake of the reconciliation of everyone. When the truth was spoken to my own sense of power, I first felt sick, and then I confessed. I keep confessing. But I also discovered something. I discovered the wide expanse of redemption. I didn't know it was possible. You see, up against the good news being preached to power, Peter and John uh, preached this, this good news to power. And the powers that be have a few interesting things to say. Uh, and so jump back to Acts chapter 4. Check this out. In verse 13, when they saw their courage, this is the powers that be, saw the courage of Peter and John, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. May the same be said for us. In verse 14 and 16, when the evidence of restoration was right in front of them, the man who was unable to walk, now being able to walk, these powers that be could say nothing. They could not deny it. When the truth was presented to power, they could not argue. When the truth is presented to us, may we not argue our way to another conclusion. Silence here is holy. And then when the powers that be demanded that Peter and John stay quiet about the good news of Jesus, Peter and John respond, we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They can't keep quiet, even when it threatens the loudest current. May the same be said for us. May we be found leaning against the currents of the mainstream when they threaten the life, the restoration, the redemption, the resurrection of all. May we be found speaking truths to power even when that power is amidst us. May we be found as a church built on the cornerstone of Jesus, willing to tell the story of reconciliation, even and especially when it is costly. Because while it costs, while calling costs something, it is certain that it is worth it. Please pray with me. God, it's a lot. It's a lot. And certainly you give us courage to do these things, but we also need to acknowledge our fear with these things. God, it's a lot. When we're not even able to assess all of the cost of these callings. 
God, instead of trying to parse out the cost, would you invite us to see the worth first? And God, as we come to your table, where you proclaim beautiful things about reconciliation, about our worth, about the promise of life for all of us, may we join with you in this meal. And may we discover something about the great body of Christ. And may we also come confessing the power that we try to maintain. So God, prepare our hearts now for the gift of this table.